Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Clean Techies Podcast. This is episode 76 of the show. I'm your host, Silas Maynard, and thank you for joining us on today's episode. Quick moment uh, to thank everybody for the support this year. This is obviously the last episode of the year. So thank, thanks, big thanks to everyone for supporting the show and listening throughout this year. It's been a pretty great year in general. Had a lot of pretty interesting guests overall, so really big thanks to everybody uh, for being a supporter of the show. And then just a quick note, um, obviously, as we go into the new year, wanted to make a quick update on the direction of the show. So we are going to be starting starting with our next episode, not, not this one, but starting with our next episode, we're going to be focused solely on climate tech founders and climate tech VCs. And the focus will be founders offering advice to other climate tech founders. I think it's super necessary for uh, the different people in the space to to hear from people who have been building companies in the space. I don't think there's a whole lot of resources out there for these founders, at least not to my knowledge. So wanted to sh- to shift the focus of the show a little bit in order to help um, kind of be a, a source of uh, resources for other founders in the space. And then on the VC side, we will be focused on interviewing VCs for to offer their advice to other founders when it comes to pitching or fundraising as well as to other VCs in the space. So just really wanted to shift the focus of the show in order to little, provide a little bit more resources to the people in the community. So with that, I uh, also want to make a quick note to any founders who are in the space who are looking for um, partnerships or connections or funding. We're always glad to make introductions wherever we can. So if you are fundraising, feel free to reach out. We'll introduce you to our network of VCs um, that are relevant. And then, of course, also to partnerships that might make sense. And a quick note to our sponsors, NextWave Partners. Quick thanks to them. Uh, NextWave are experts in talent acquisition, recruitment, and retention across the climate tech, renewables, and ESG spaces globally. So if your team is growing or you're looking to make a career change, you can reach out to them at next-wavepartners.com or reach out to one of their consultants directly via their LinkedIn page. All right, so let's get into today's episode details. Uh, today we are joined by an individual who focuses a bit more on a, on the philosophical side of things, uh, kind of something that we tend to on something we tend to be a little bit uncomfortable with in Western society, which is endings. So J- Joe McLeod, the who is an author, speaker, and founder of And End, that's A N D E N D, is an expert in endings and what he calls engineering. So engineering, but a little bit of a twist, kind of kind of a fun name. And in this conversation, Joe lays out for us the importance of thinking about the end of product life experience. So this is from both the practical uh, kind of what happens with the product when we are done with it, as well as from the customer's experience mentally and emotionally at the end of their journey with that product. This is important for a few reasons. Kind of firstly, we need not only to be conscious of what the materials our product is made of. So when it ends, it can be reused or upcycled. That's something we've talked about previously. But we just as importantly need to get creative on how the customer can be guided at the end of life cycle to ensure that the product gets to the point where it can be recycled or reused in another way. Uh, Second, we need to achieve this in order to start getting the consumer mindset to change if we want individuals to think more consciously about when they are done with something, what to do with it, right? I think it's this kind of entire life cycle that has to come together. So it's really really interesting idea. And then in, in addition to the aforementioned, we, we also discussed how legislation needs to come into view at the end of products, at least in Europe. Uh, we talked about a little bit about this use and how it's done there. But be, because the companies are not really taking an active part in the end of their uh, their product life cycle, so it's really necessary for legislation to, to try to help with that. We also discussed the importance of thinking about the end of our own lives when making our career decisions or using a guide kind of throughout our day-to-day decisions and decision-making processes, thinking about what what are we doing today that's going to kind of uh, be in the forefront of our minds at the end of our lives and something that a lot of people aren't, aren't, aren't exactly interested in thinking about. I think it's a, it sounds a bit morbid, but we talked also about the origin of how this came to be through the kind of combination of the uh, industrial revolution as well as their Protestant revolution kind of changing this and making it really uncomfortable to think about endings. So generally speaking, really, really fascinating episode. I know this is a super long introduction, but I really wanted to give it the uh, kind of the necessity that I think it was important to, to share a little bit about what we're talking about with Joe as it's a very different type of episode. It's not a specific product. It's not a specific company, but really, really interesting, especially for climate tech founders as we are thinking about building a circular economy not just from a materials perspective, but also the actual user experience. So really enjoyed this episode and looking forward to sharing with you. So without any further delay, let's get into the show. 
All right. Welcome. Welcome to the show, Joe. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for inviting us along, Silas. Yeah, absolutely. Super, super excited to have you on. I, I, uh, when they reached out to potentially have you on as a guest, I was really excited about once I saw your, your profile and I was like, well, I don't know how, how can we fit this exactly into climate tech, but I think we've got a pretty good discussion point set up here today. So I'm really keen uh, to get into this. So, so for people unfamiliar, why don't you just give us kind of a quick summary of your, your background and maybe a few of your accomplishments so people can, can know a little bit about you before we go into this. Okay, sure. Uh, so I come originally from a design background. I've done lots of design work for product, different product sort of sectors in my life, uh, being in big companies, small companies, um, developing all sorts of products, physical, digital and service sectors. So quite experienced in that. And um, in terms of that uh, process of building those products, I and one of the reasons I started getting into this endings thing is because we ended up just designing onboarding and usage periods of all these products. And this is how I, you know, if you think about the consumer life cycle, there's three sections of it, onboarding, usage, and offboarding. If you think of onboarding, that's like marketing, advertising, those type of things. So these are very powerful storytelling, exciting things that gets engaged, it gets excited about like, what, what am I going to do about this product? I have to buy this product. And then in usage, we build and craft these sort of things. And um, we make sure they work really, really well. And so the consumer can really use them. And then nothing. We all walk away from the last third in terms of product development. And this is what I was experiencing for like the decades that I was working in product development. We would constantly build onboarding and usage stages and ship it out the door. And so I started to dig into this issue around uh, I called it closure experiences uh, years ago, but um, I started digging into it and um, started to understand that this is an enormous issue and it's deeply embedded in the way uh, society has developed around consumerism. And the essence of that comes from our experience of death, the changes that happened before the Industrial Revolution. And I'm talking about the Industrial Revolution happening in Northern Europe and the Protestant uprising, the plague and stuff like that was going on uh, previous to that. And it changed a lot of relationships with endings. And therefore, we ended up with this absent endings in consumerism. So what I'm kind of curious about a couple of things there. So first of all, how, you know, you mentioned that you spend a number of years doing this and working in design and, and noticed that there was never a focus on the on the endings. Was this something you've always noticed or is it like something you've always been attentive to? Like what, what really caused you to really notice that and be attentive to that fact? Because obviously if you're in a field where nobody else is necessarily caring about it, I'm just curious where that inspiration came from. Absolutely. So um, I had a couple of experiences, one as a consumer and one actually as a lecturer, I was um, teaching at the time and um, I set a sort of cliche project, I guess, about um, waste and rubbish in the world and what should we do about it? And all of these people went off and they came back with sort of marketing material, like a, a pencil that says, don't waste, uh, don't waste um, clothes or a, a mug that says, look after the environment. And it was just such a baffling mess, sort of a philosophical, intellectual, sociological mess that this is our response. We need to raise awareness by creating something else. And I didn't really have the vocabulary. This was... Uh, you know, this is way, way back in 2005, this sort of thing happened. I also had an experience on mobile phones. I had this ridiculous sort of like avatar secretarian on mobile phone, and it would done this amazing promise of like, it'll pick up your messages, etc. And um, when I used it out and about, obviously, because it's mobile, it used to say, sorry, I don't understand you. Sorry, I don't. It was a voice um, recognition phone. It was terrible. So the I hated it so much. I wanted a satisfaction of sort of really smashing it to bits. And then I started to think, why don't we design satisfaction into our endings as much as we want that emotional ending to have that satisfaction? And so these sort of things, these roles. So I started to get interested. This is from 2005 into the end of the consumer experience and the roll on sort of like 
10, 15 years, I sort of went off, done a career. I was um, like head of design in big companies for a, a few different experiences. And then um, I started to look into this really a lot more seriously. I um, started researching it in 2014. I No, sorry, 2015. I then published a book in 2017 called Ends, which is the first book I published. And that's a sort of sociological, historical um I'm showing it to you here. I don't know if you're going to record uh, the visuals as well, but I'll put it into the show notes, the first book. And then that that was really, a lot of people were really fascinated by that. I ended up doing lots of talks around the world, um, speaking with lots of companies about why we don't design endings in the consumer experience. So if you think about consumerism is an experience. When I go out and buy something, I'm really engaged in that. I'm actually all of us as consumers, we're super experienced at reading, understanding, messaging and materials that we're, are coming towards us and we're experiencing that. And we've been doing that for hundreds of years. We've got incredible industries in marketing and advertising that tell us stories, emotional experiences that make us want to buy stuff and consume it. But at the other end of the consumer life cycle, it drops off really quickly in terms of emotional experience. So we have no experiences at the end. When you throw something away, the experience is very personal, very context-driven, and you're abandoned. So if I, I put that into context as this, this gap at the end of the consumer life cycle. And in this gap has four problem characteristics. The first one is the relationship break. So that's that relationship which was so important at the beginning of the consumer life cycle where between the consumer and the provider that breaks and in that breakage all of the assets fall out of that and um, they then fall into society's uh, problem or the environment's problem the second one the second problem at the end is the asset definition is lost so what I purchased at onboarding I was really clear about the definitions and we all understand the definitions at the beginning of the consumer life cycle and I benefit from those in the usage period of the consumer life cycle at the end when I throw something away into the waste stream it immediately loses all of those definitions and becomes another component of waste so we've lost that definition the third one is the actors and actions are anonymized. so if you think about when when I when you purchase something as a consumer you um, are really clearly associated with that product. So uh, some of our oldest laws are based around ownership of a product. And so when I buy something, I own it. And we've built loads of other sort of loyalty schemes based on that. So actors and actions are really important at the beginning of the consumer life cycle. But at the end, they're all anonymized. So, for example, I can throw a piece of, for example, a pen or a printer ink cartridge straight in the waste or any sort of electronics straight in the waste. I'm totally anonymized from that. I can get off an airplane and I've dumped a load of carbon in the air. I'm anonymized from that experience. So these sort of things between the beginning and the end really change drastically. And the last one roots to neutralizing a blurred. Um, when I purchase something, I understand its components and stuff. Um, when I throw something away, I have loads of questions about what happens to it. If I have an apple, I consume an apple, I'm really confident I can throw that away really um, confidently. It will decay in the environment and uh, it will be fine because that's a natural thing. But as soon as we go up to an increment of complexities, human-made complexity, like a plastic bag or a pen, for example, we start to ask questions about it. We start to not understand how it gets neutralized. And these are all problems that are consumer experience problems at the end of the consumer life cycle. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting to hear how you've gotten into this. I, I'm, I'm just trying to piece together kind of some, some of this, what you've said here. I think it's quite interesting. And so just kind of go back to the original question of how you got into it. You know, this makes sense how you've gotten into it and how you've gone to it. And, and then the problems that there are, the four specific gaps. Um, I do have some other questions I want to take away from that, but I also wanted to go back before we get too far away from it to what you mentioned was the, it sounded like to me, it was kind of a mention of the origin of this idea of getting away from end of life. Right. And you talked about the industrial revolution and the plague. Yeah. Could you, could you tie that together and how that translated into kind of forgetting about the end, end of life cycle for, for these things? Could you translate that a bit? So the historical context of it. 
Sure. Yes. So if you if you think about the Industrial Revolution, it birthed in Northern Europe. So you had uh, all of those things happen. in Europe. So for the previous few hundred years before before that, Europe had been disrupted by um, different religious uprisings and stuff. So one of the big ones was um, after the plague. The dominant religion of Northern Europe was the um, Catholic religion, and they have a quite a clear sort of um, trajectory into death. Uh, in the Catholic religion, you can renounce sin as you go towards the end of your life. So you're quite clear about like how you're going to uh, sort of bridge that gap between death, uh, life and death. In the Protestant religion, you don't get the chance to correct. You get judged once at the end of end of life. So if you think about very early context, sociological context, religious context of what endings mean, you have to start to think about that. It's the most, you know, we, as I often point out, we have commonalities across the whole of the of the earth, which uh, we're all born and we are all going to die. So death is a really important aspect in our experience on Earth. So um, the after after the plague, the Protestant uprising happened the protestants had three things that they had changed differently to the catholics around that period the first one was um fasting uh if you think about the religious experience of fasting and many many cultures and religions have the religious experience of fasting you remove yourself from the abundance of life and you reflect upon it if you think about how absent that is in our consumer and our general life nowadays an amazing what a skill that would be now. But we, um, Martin Luther removed that, the um, leader of the Protestants, removed that really early on in the Protestant uprising. The second thing was the relationship with jobs, um, which the Catholics had three good jobs, Pope, a priest and a nun. All other jobs considered quite lowly. But the Protestants, they considered any job, if done well, with craft and thought, is a good job in the eyes of God. So people got into their careers. You think about career path. The Protestants were massive um, uh, benefactors of that, I guess. And um, and lastly, the ability to borrow money to invest. And these things rolled in, rolled on and matured. These three things, the fasting, the um, relationship with jobs and the relationship with money. These re rolled on, matured, and they sort of lay the grounding for us to consume uh, when we start to hit the industrial revolution and we also start to push this relationship with um, endings and death the protestants uh, aren't so focused on the end of life so we distanced ourselves from that and on top of that we start to get um, different experiences like um, the um, progressive obsolescence uh, have you heard of that maybe no okay so um, a little bit longer after this so we're rolling forward now past the industrial revolution into sort of consumer boom of the US. So we've got sort of the essence, the background of the industrial revolution has quite a lot of religious um, anchors in it. It starts to change and manifest and become a lot more uh, of a faster experience driven thing. And um, taken to the US, it's sort of desecularized as an experience. But we have things like uh, which was developed in the US, a thing called progressive obsolescence. Now, in Europe, so these are the big sort of consumer boom places. In Europe, if you have a, um, let's say you have some clothing, even if you're quite rich, you might well wear that clothing until it's worn out before you buy a new one. In the pro sort of more progressive and very bountiful America of sort of the 50s and earlier, they believe that we could buy more. We should buy stuff because we want to buy stuff. And this was a clear sort of like um, bit of sociology, sociology, which um, was being discussed at the time. This sort of ability, this purpose to buy things because I want things, not because I need it because the other things worn out. And that's a massive leap forward in terms of consumerism in sociology. Mm hmm. So I guess to just kind of summarize this a combination of the lack of focus on one's individual ending <clears throat> kind of translated into a lack of focus, perhaps for, I mean, especially if you, you pair it with what you said was the focus on 
careers, right? And growing and then eventually growing businesses, right? I'm assuming that kind of goes into that. And then the focus on at some point with when you don't think about the ending so much, you, you're more about, hey, how can I sell more perhaps, right? And there wasn't this probably this idea of uh, conscious capitalism in any, any kind of way at the time. It's oh, just yeah. about how can we sell more? And um, I, I've heard a lot of stories about how in the, in the US in early days, the industrialists really focused on how can we how can we get people to buy more things, right? It was kind of a yeah. on a policy level, right? Like in enforcing yeah. school and things like that to get people off the farms and things. Yeah. So I think it's interesting. So you're saying the combination of that lack of focus on the ending <clears throat> plus the consumerism and the idea to just sell more things kind of is what led led to this idea in particular in the US of just buy because you want it, buy more, buy more, buy more, correct? Yeah, and that and that's the sort of background to the story that I start to build into the ends book. And it starts, so thereafter i start to build on that argument that our relationship with endings in a consumer experience is a big part of the problem that we're in at the moment and so the first the first book the ends book um talks about that sort of sociological historical journey and it takes it up to sort of modern day periods into services um physical products and digital products um the argument also goes on to to say that this isn't a problem just with the pollution that we're doing, the damage that we're doing in, with carbon, but also across, um, we see it very clearly in services in terms of mis-selling. We see it also in digital in terms of uh, privacy and um, bit, uh, people not recognising how long their data lasts as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this, so lack, th this lack of uh, endings is um, everywhere. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So I, I want to from this point i'm just trying to see which which way to go next i think um what might be interesting is to have you speak a little bit about some of the companies you're familiar with or have consulted with on companies that have taken a very you know traditional conventional product with a focus on the beginning and the usership but not the end and how they have transformed their products to be useful at the end and uh, how, how that will looks maybe that's using it in something else at the end, recycling it, or perhaps it's just a, a certain a kind of consumer experience of, of closing things off. I'd be keen to know a bit about both. Sure. And I appreciate your audience is a lot more into the sort of um, recycling and sustainability angle. So um, yeah, if I was going to come down into that a little bit more, for sure. Uh, so let's look at why endings is really important in terms of what we're doing with sustainability in the environment at the moment. Currently, a lot of circular economy um, strategies work around, um, we discuss about materials, importance of manufacturing, efficiencies in those manufacturers and improving and reducing energy and stuff. So we're looking at lots of aspects of that. Generally, the consumer isn't that interested in that. They're interested in the benefits a product will bring them and the benefits that will give them in their life. And so what tends to happen is we've lost the consumer discussion and the consumer experience at the end of the consumer life cycle. And we're starting to deal with the mechanics and the materials in terms of sustainability and circular economy. So we end up in a lot of circular economy discussions um, around like this big hole that we're missing, which is what's the consumer experience at the end? You, irregard of how good your circularity is, your sourcing is, if you can't get that out of a person's house to your great manufacturing place or your efficiencies, then um, we've got lots of problems. So coming back to your is, um, your your question about businesses that have done this um we can look at kia cars the korean car manufacturer maybe maybe it's kaya kia anyway um we can look at them and uh we can see how they introduced a thing called the seven-year warranty about sort of 12 13 years ago and the seven-year warranty is really interesting because uh humans find it really hard to think beyond five years so when you enter a past five years it starts to become this void you can't really quite project what's it going to be like in six seven years you can sort of think to be five years that's where you get that cliche job interview question or the financial advisor question of what you think you'll be doing in five years time seven years is a bit of a void it's like this death-like void so your product is in this void when you've purchased it, this warranty period, which is seven years out. And it was pioneering at the time. No one was doing seven-year warranties. Since doing the seven-year warranty, it's helped that business double their global market share 
their customers are some of the most loyal in the industry and they put the seven-year warranty above every other aspect of the consumer life cycle because essentially what they're having is an end point to their consumer experience it's a funeral at the end of product life it's somewhere where they've got a destination to go so they don't have to worry about things and of course in the background kaya can have a conversation with the consumer they can reclaim those materials really accurately and they have really good um infantry sort of uh ability to sort of uh have a conversation as that consumer comes closer to that seven-year warranty and so that that's a really good example i think and then uh th then i think another one which may be some of your listeners um, experience in their daily life is um, bottle reclaim schemes, uh, or maybe it's um, bottle deposit schemes. So you will, in some regions, this happens. So I'm in Sweden. We do it here. It's fantastic. In some US states, they do it. Um, I didn't have it in the UK when uh, I left the UK. What happens is that you have a small deposit when you purchase a product and that might be a plastic bottle a can or a, a glass bottle that small deposit is giving you a little nudge all the time that you have got that in your house to take that back to some place and that's a really good thing and then once i mean for in sweden you we then take it back to a specific thing like a machine and you put them up you put the bottle in and then you get a credit out and then you spend that in the supermarket and um this thing is really good for the consumer because it's a clear trajectory from onboarding, you're engaged at usage, and you've got to do something at offboarding. And then and you're bonded with the provider all the way through that, and you're going to take that back to a place which is going to accurately reclaim that material, and then you get a benefit. And the and when the partnership is broken, it's broken with a neutralizing component in it, in terms of that bottle is now in the right place. And that that I think is really that's the fundamental principle is this is we need to design endings in the consumer life cycle so we can do that with everything. So that's quite fascinating. I think it's interesting. I, I, maybe just to clarify, does Kia, when they have this end of the seven year warranty, are they usually kind of talking to these people to to get them to purchase another vehicle usually and then taking and reusing those parts and other things? Is there a specific thing that they do with the ending? Well, that's the thing. I think there's um, is such a benefit for like um, if you think about sales, most of the time, if you have worked in sales or any sort of business, which is doing quite sort of fast turnover of sales, you're always looking for the next sale. You're never looking to the point where. So when's it going to end? Because that's the time to really have the conversation about do they want a new one? It's not like repeated sales. And I see such a lot of wastage in terms of money initiatives from businesses to say how are we going to improve sales how are we going to get out there and what you need to do is start having conversations at the end of product life not more at the beginning we all understand how sales work we can't possibly make them better but we can make the end <laughs> amazingly better and so to come back to your point kaya cars i think it's sort of not even the problem then because they've been having a conversation all the way to that end of product life that that is a bonding experience and that is a really trusted relationship so that mm -hmm. i i'm sure that is the easiest sale even if it is a sale it's probably the easiest sale on earth yeah that is a good point because there's a relationship that's built like you said yeah. uh, i think it's interesting like I'm, I'm a big fan of apple products in general but there's a lot of people who complain about the and i think rightfully so the idea that they're you know constantly trying to just get people to buy the new iphone right where it's like yeah. well why why should you if you're trying to be sustainable you know i'm glad you have the sustainable materials and they obviously have the kind of you know turn in your old iphone to get a credit because they can reuse some of those materials but i do think that there needs to be kind of a happy medium between companies that do this right where it's like we do want to sell more products but at the same time how much profit is 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 enough profit? Like, do we need to constantly just make more profit at, at somebody else's expense, perhaps? Um, so I think that's an interesting topic. I, I wanted to ask... Um, Actually, I could come back on the Apple thing because I've done some work around the Apple offboarding experience. I, I had a, an example. and um, I took an old laptop back to Apple. It was 10 years old. My We had used it. Our kids had used it. And the battery was starting to really blow the keyboard. <laughs> and so it was super dangerous to let the kids play with it. 
So I take it back to Apple and I thought it would be some sort of celebratory experience. This is what it should, what it was and what it should have been. I take it back to Apple and I say, look, uh, you know, this has been in the family for years, so uh, it looks really dangerous now. I think you should probably take care of it now. And they said, great. And they bought out a form, a bit of paper, and for me to fill in my own name and address and and stuff. And it was just the most brutal sort of old 20th century approach to what could have been an amazing ending experience. This product had had so much use from my family and we'd all gone through this product and it was one of those points which was thrown away and it could have been so meaningful. So it started to make me think about Apple as like, as you say, like they're considered one of the best in the world in terms of consumer experience. Their endings are atrocious. So the other part of this is that um, we get businesses like Apple. Uh, they talk a lot about um, how great they are at doing recycling, reclaiming, and they've built a robot that dismantles a phone, et cetera, or a, or a laptop, and they reclaim a lot of materials. That it, it really doesn't matter to the consumer whether they do that well or good or whatever, or with robots or without robots. The, the relationship's over already. That's sort of just branding, greenwashing, really. Yet... Apple, when you buy a new phone, and it's not just Apple, it could be any phone, when you get that out of the box, they've got an amazing onboarding experience. I've built these in the past. I've worked in digital. They've got an amazing onboarding experience that you will get you set up really quickly. And it pulls together. I've had to assemble these things, and they're incredibly complicated because you're pulling in all sorts of databases, all sorts of credit cards, getting those things approved, and all sorts of things into this really seamless onboarding experience. The end of your product life is you going, my camera's a bit rubbish. Oh, my God, my battery's not working. It doesn't charge. It doesn't charge. My battery's failed. And you're having these very lonely off-boarding experiences until you just give up, really, and you're abandoned. And Apple has an opportunity to make off-boarding as good as onboarding. You imagine like the fitness app for your product, your Apple product, which is going, hey, Joe, uh, your Apple phone's not working as well as it used to. The battery's now only X amount of um, capability. Your such and such isn't working as well. And a lot of your apps aren't really capable of running on your thing. We think you've got so much longer until this product fails, but we're here for you. And they could have had this, these stages of the offboarding experience could be nurturing, bonding, and supportive. And sadly, on so many occasions, consumers are abandoned they don't know what to do and they're uninstructed and that's what happens when we start chucking stuff in the wrong places as well mm -hmm. yeah i do think it's interesting because obviously if any company that's out there you would think that apple would be one to to care deeply about this and um you know kind of the lack of attention to it perhaps a, an opportunity for innovation but also if you have that good relationship, maybe they will end up selling more things, right? Because the 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 more Absolutely. the more the more deep that relationship is, the more tied to it you are. If they if they acknowledged when you brought that Mac that Mac in, you know, yeah. ten years is a long time oh. to have a Mac. So, and yeah, imagine <laughs> building that loyalty as a business. You say you've got this loyal customer who loves your company, and you've just chucked away that celebratory ten year moment. That is shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to come back on the on the on the phone thing a little bit. In the UK, they just done a bit of research, a company called GifGaff, and they found that there's 55 million phones in drawers because people don't know what to do with them at the end because people are abandoned, uninstructed. 55 million phones in drawers unused because people are scared to throw them away or get rid yeah. of them in the appropriate yeah. way, uninstructed. Yeah. That is a, that is a good point. I think um, this is what what was going to go to my next question was yeah. you know obviously you, you mentioned the, the bottle reclaiming system and I think I had somebody on recently as well who talked about this a little bit uh, overseas and I'm just kind of curious for companies that may not have you know may not fit into an existing reclaiming model or or something like that what are some of the ways I don't know if you want to pick a particular type of product or something what are some of the ways that they can ensure that they're getting aware or there can at least be maybe it's not an electronic device where you have this communication throughout the process how can they ensure that the consumer is informed at the end of and at the end of it and to know hey you know you know deposit this here because it will help with this or that and then it gives them an opportunity to deepen that relationship so, so how, how do they do how do they yeah. start to design consumer offboarding experiences 
Yes. I call it Endoneering. That's the title of the second book, which came out last year. So the Endoneering book is the instruction manual of how to do endings. So the first thing, and all sorts of companies have all sorts of types of endings. The first thing that you need to do in any company is start talking about what is the end of our product like. And I go into the book. So there's um, in the book, I, I outline eight different types of endings that consumers commonly experiencing in their consumer life cycle. And in that, so I just I just read them out to you here. So a timeout ending is the sort of ending that you'll have on holiday. So two week holiday after two weeks, it ends. Exhaustion credit out. So if you have got like a pay as you go sort of SIM card, you once you exhaust all of that, you'll you'll end up um, having to get a new one or sort of your batteries ended. A task event completion. So much damage is done in that type of ending. Uh, all our disposable products are task event completion. So I get a coffee. It's in a plastic cup. As soon as I consume that coffee, the task is done. It's completed. I throw away the cup, coffee, coffee cup. We have broken and withdrawal. Those are the types of endings that just, you know, something gets exerted and, and, it, and it breaks. Lingering endings aren't talked about much because they're forgotten about. They're the things in your cupboards, the back of your cupboard, in your loft, at the back of your drawers, the things which you, for example, I've outgrown suits which are 10 years old. So they're like not happening. They're lingering until I consciously start to recognize that and pull that into me. You get proximity endings, which is sort of like I moved from the UK to Sweden. I moved out the proximity of loads of services in the UK, but also you get it when you move from Apple to Android, for example. Uh, cultural endings fashion is a really good example of that that's all over the place it's incredibly complicated it's very nuanced and it moves very quickly but also we get political endings in that category so i i might have a view that i feel that the company i'm loyal to hasn't got the same political views views on the environment etc etc and now that relationship's broken. But the one we all talk about, and in business, you'll be comfortable, anyone will talk about, is competition endings. So our product isn't as good as the others. There's eight different types of endings you need to start talking about in a business to start that discussion going. And once you start the discussion going, you'll see these incredible amount of opportunity and innovation in this area to work on. And you can start to then dig around and start to chip away at like, Oh, wow, that's really interesting. And you'll start to observe your consumers to see where they fall out of your customer relationship as well. And then you can start improving. But the first thing I recommend to anyone, start talking about it and start really start discussing and observing it. Have you seen any particular companies, you know, with one of those eight uh, types of endings that you could talk about, like what they've done, especially perhaps the the particularly different ones difficult ones where you said uh, I think you said task end of task ending that companies have um, innovated in in ways and found ways to get people to be engaged in that experience where it's very difficult to to have any sort of you know you can't be present as a as a company at that moment to make sure that they they t partake in the ending the proper way have, have you seen any innovation in in this space uh, yeah, so in, in the second book, there's a lot of examples. Um, I'll just pull up a couple here. So um, some of the ones that I, I think are really interesting and some actually a really good example. I'll just I'll give you this example, which is from um, the fashion sector. Let's say lots of fashion companies are now saying we make really good, sustainable products. We're really thoughtful about where we source our material from, et cetera, et cetera. That sort of seems to be surely a baseline for now. But very few of them are really thinking about end of product life and how they pull that back. So how do they get that product from the consumer back to their their manufacturing and their dismantling and their reprocessing center? Um, there's a company called Rapini Clothing, which came out of the UK. And they've put, um, they thought about the postage. So you get a five pound uh, voucher to send your product back. They've thought about um, how that gets categorized in a database. So they've put in the labels, they've um, got a QR code and a, and a number that you can uh, put into their website to see what product it is. And they'll start shipping out stuff. So they're thinking about what's the logistics around the product reshipping and uh, pulling it back, those sort of re reverse logistics. 
and another company on that just building on that there's a company called stuffster um and they and it, i think i'm um, quite an innovative company and they've done quite a lot of work around this uh, the, the founder has i can't remember his name i'm afraid at the moment stuffster realized that we can't keep doing sort of secondhand um shops and this isn't that isn't the way we're going to get out of this scenario that we're in with sustainability we've got to go to the uh, point of purchase and the database that has all of those products in so when you um sell a product from a company stuffter needs to know that bit because then they can start having a conversation about the end of the product life so what they've done um stuffter does uh they basically you download the app you stuffter hopefully knows what products you've purchased recently and then they'll tell you how much it's worth at resale value right there and then not that you want to maybe sell it right there and then but you've got a database of all of the products that you own ideally that you know exactly what its resale value is there. So they're already in the end of product life and they're ready for shipping it, pricing it and knowing how they're going to sell it. And that's, I, that's the sort of mindset that we need to get into is that we've got solutions already prepared for the end of product life right mm -hmm. at the beginning. Yeah, I think it's interesting. This idea, um, this is actually something I tend to be a bit of a, and not a numbers person per se, but I like to keep track of a lot of things. And I've thought about this at one point, like keeping track of my possessions, right? Because I moved, yeah. I've unfortunately moved a lot of times in yeah. the past six years. <laughs> yeah. And every time you move, you lose some things. And then yeah, you have yeah. you know that you have these things, but you have no idea where to find them. So you just buy a new one, right? Yeah. And I'm this is an interesting idea to think about the idea of kind of keeping a catalog because i think yeah. if everybody understood and they visualized how much how many things they own they would start yeah. to actually take pause and be like whoa that's a lot you know that's a lot of things maybe i don't need another one or maybe i can get rid of something in the meantime and i think there's a woman called i think it's marina parks uh she is a interiors person cataloging things i think a three hundred thousand items in the average american home from paper clips to TVs to couches mm -hmm. to all sorts of things. That's wild, isn't it? But yeah. you're right. If And I think this is the thing. If we can database and capture like all of the items that we've purchased, capturing that and knowing that this product is now expired, this product is now, you know, its batteries in a dangerous state, this product is worth this amount of money. This product should go back to this place. So we've got conversations. We feel supported. We've got instruction at the end of product life. Because you'd think how easy it would be to go through your credit card at onboarding. You know exactly what you've purchased. Those companies know exactly what you've done. We need the same level of uh, databasing, the level of accuracy, and we need to sort of start to understand what the offboarding experience is mm -hmm. of these these consuming things. Yeah, I, th I could see it being very likely in a situation like Stuffter or, or example, where companies decide to create a product that is opt opt in for people who care, care about these things and then they can kind of upload as they as they go and then this this organization would then be able to find out what are the ways that you can end this product life cycle well and then start yep. to partner with the organizations that maybe they're very good at designing like apple but maybe they're not very good at designing the ending right and uh, yep. start to partner with them to create a, a more circular economy yeah um I want to I want to focus uh, change topics a little bit here. I am yep. curious to get your thoughts on the topic of regulation. I think a lot of people talk about you know especially in in the U.S. It's a very I'm not sure how it is other places, but really a lot of focus on kind of legislative action and getting things passed. But um, I know from examples of where I'm from in Wisconsin, there was this. It, it happened to be in the in the national news at one point, not too many years ago, where. Uh, it was discovered that there was a law against throwing snowballs, right? And uh, it's like from years, decades and decades ago, right? It was kind of irrelevant why it came up, but it it never got taken out of law, right? So yeah. I want to just kind of dis discuss and explore this idea of regulatory sunsets to these policies. Yeah. I think it, in terms of that one, it's quite difficult for me to talk about end of legislation legislation per se but in terms of the consumer experience of legislation and the experience that businesses have of adhering to legislation it is a 
it's a super interesting thing around endings. So, for example, um, in the second book, I've, I write about the legislation that businesses and the consumer have to consciously grapple with as at the end of product life now. If you think about the amount of legislation that you go through at the beginning of the consumer life cycle, so for example, you go onto a website and uh, click cookies, that's partly legislation getting revealed. If you have a car and you are going to, I don't know, it's the end of the car's life, you've got to go through some sort of legislation in different countries around the world to make sure that gets uh, crushed or taken to the scrapyard or recycled in the appropriate types of way. So definitely legislation is really relevant to product end of life. And the, the big problem is, is that many, um, the approach that we've had in the past is because we met on the majority of occasions, businesses don't care about the end of product life. Legislation cares about the end of product life. So legislation gets revealed. If businesses cared more about the end of product life, they'd be adding experience into that. The legislation would then become invisible again. Mm-hmm. And what, we, what we're going to let me just paint a picture of a current sort of legislative uh, network that humans are going to start getting involved with well that we currently are involved with this when we get a digital device we are ending up in all sorts of different uh, bits of legislation so as a consumer uh, i'm going to talk about europe for, for a moment but as a consumer in europe with a digital product we, ha- we um, have to adhere by the WE directive, which is about throwing um, items away. So electronic items should be collected and um, then taken to the appropriate places. So that's one piece of legislation. On top of any uh, digital thing, you're going to have data in it. So you're going to then have to adhere to GDPR. I mean, in the US, it will be California uh, or other other states um um, situations in any other countries that will have some sort of other thing and th- and then if you think about like okay i'm going to get a tesla you've that now you're covered by gdpr the we directive if it's in europe obviously and then you're going to have all of these other old so there's all of these things which are going on which we are invisible onboarding because they're covered by the consumer experience and they've been sort of made invisible and the offboarding they're revealed because nobody cares about creating an ending. So when legislation starts to get revealed, it's often because a business doesn't care about making it invisible and putting an experience around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I'll give this... you actually, a, sorry, uh, I'll give you a really strange example on cookies. How often do you click on a cookie and you think like, oh, I'm giving consent to this website to take my data and you're saying yes to a cookie. I'd say all the time I look at those and I wish I could just Absolutely. Ag- ignore you, it. I don't want it. Do you ever think about how long that cookie lasts? Until I clear my cache. <laughs> well, that, yes, that's one way of doing it. But most of people aren't clearing their caches all the time. Um, <laughs> so as you know, and I'm sure all your listeners, though, there's two types of cookies. There's a session cookie and a persistent cookie. Persistent cookie hangs around on your computer, sending data back to the mothership. Uh there's no real legislation about when cookies should end. So you can put any, you've got to have an end date, but what that end date is doesn't really matter. So I, I am obviously obsessed with ending. So I dig into any website that's giving me cookies. I see what their expiry date is. And and companies put anything in there. Given, give me a thought about how long you think is the longest cookie consent that I've ever found. I mean, I would say lifetime probably. Well, what's a lifetime, I guess, because they have to put a number in it. I mean, my my guess would they would say probably 150 years or something. So a lot of the big companies are doing like Google, Amazon, they'll do like 10 to 15 years. Uh, Like places like Target do maybe a bit longer, maybe 30 year cookie. Uh, Then there's a whole load of which are doing like 100 years. So that's like talking about lifetimes. That's that would be multi-generational. I'd have to ask my kids to approve this cookie in collaboration. The long, the longest ones I found, I found one which was 1,792 years. <laughs> that would take you wow. back to Rome. If you went back in time, it would take you back to Rome. 9,978 years, I think, was the longest one I found. And the thing is, I was laughing and we find it baffling and... You know, we think, oh, isn't that crazy? And you think of how many products we've thrown away and put into landfill, which 
would easily live out that all those bottles and all sorts of <laughs> metal things so yeah. it's we're doing the same thing in digital as that we do in physical mm -hmm. yeah i think it's i think it's interesting i do think that uh, one thing i want to make a comment on which is uh, something i've noticed is that I, I i grew up a little bit different than a lot of people my age and we didn't have internet i didn't have um cellular device my parents still don't have a cell phone so like when i when i turned 18 you know got a cell phone and started kind of getting into the world more essentially and um really i have this my it's also part of my personality is to collect things i don't i don't mm -hmm. like to feel like i'm losing something right so until recently i've always been collecting things like if i see somebody interesting on twitter i follow them or if i see i just constantly follow i'm really generous with that because i want to have more information that i can then decide you know what to use it use it on right and until recently, you know, I've get to a point where now things are extremely busy and I have to try to minimize that. So then you start yeah. to take, take it down and try to get rid of things. And um, I just think that this is something interesting that people should be looking at is how can we focus on having like more intentionally curating our media and curating our products and the things that we have that we're more intentional about what we do and do not have. I don't know that everybody struggles with this. I think a lot of people tend to prefer sm a smaller number of things, but there's a lot of people like myself who are afraid of, you know, letting go of things. Um, absolutely, so maybe, absolutely. So maybe with that, I would, wouldn't mind kind of going into this idea of how, when people start to think about the end of life cycle or end of, you know, the end of the product life, how does this affect human psychology in, in a positive way? And especially if you can have any examples of, how it can be a positive effect for re reversing climate change. So a couple of things. Um, Marie Kondo, which I'm sure many of you listeners have heard about, there's a, I think there's a show on Netflix she done. Uh, the show's a little bit sort of grotesque, but if you read the book, it's an incredible sort of journey of for her uh, about relationships with things. And so much is it, so much of that is a re emotional relationship. How do I say thank you and appreciate a product or a thing? And how do I give value to that? So Marie Kondo comes from Japan. Uh, so she has a Buddhist sort of Shinto background in her in her culture. And if you go into the Shinto Buddhist background, it's one of the only religions that has a processor, a mechanism for saying goodbye to objects. So in Japan, you have a thing called Amonism, which believes that every object has some sort of personality and uh, emotion in it and so it's really important that you say goodbye to the end of the product and then you give it value and it's partly to to your point Silas is about making sure that you give value to those things and appreciate those things for what they are not for accumulating more of them as it were so she's really big on that and given uh take going through the book on on that level is really really good there's lots of psychology around endings uh, beyond Marie Kondo. I, in the second book I dig into that, I offer up a, about, uh, I think, six different broadly um, approaches in a psychology sense in terms of different theses around uh, psychology that people have come up with in terms of how they manifest themselves in the end of the consumer life cycle. So in terms of a, a couple of examples of those, there's um, a, a thing called peak end rule, by Daniel Kamen. Um, Daniel Kamen's a psychologist. He observed uh, people having a colonoscopy, which is the uh, camera up your bottom, and it would, uh, and it's a very uncomfortable experience, as you can imagine. It goes through your lower intestines. It's not. It's um. It's very safe, but pretty uncomfortable. So observing people of what they were experiencing is this uncomfortable? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and this, this not uncomfortable. No, no. And so he took that data away and found that people will see and experience things on two points, uh, a peak and an end. So reversing that, because I'm sure not many people liked having colonoscopies, you can see observations in terms of where people experience things. We take that experience away and we can't take the whole experience away. So we'll snap that into memories and that will be a different type of approach. And the way you reduce that down to memories is in two points. What's the peak and what's the end? So businesses aim for repeated good peaks and they fail to observe endings in terms of creating good off-boarding experiences. So what we end up in, in consumerism 
we end up experiencing loads of peaks and it gives us a real sort of dizzy buzz. What we don't do is end up having closure experiences and finishing those things with conclusion, satisfaction and clarity. And and uh, I mean, in terms of um, climate change, and it's about neutralizing as well. So those are really important things in terms of where psychology and the end of product life and what's going on with consumerism goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is fascinating. I, I just I do really I guess I really hope to see that a lot of, lot more people think about this and start to implement this into their product life cycle because I could I can imagine there being some very once people start to think about it because you know until I had heard about what you're doing I had never necessarily thought about this in particular um I feel like there's a lot of creative energy that could be released on on making this actually oh, quite enjoyable absolutely. right yeah a lot yeah. of mm-hmm. So um, I guess, you know, I just a couple things to, to note. I think um, I think it makes a lot of sense for especially people, you know, listening to this podcast, whether or not you are working in in the climate tech space or building something to really take into account how how do how does the end of your product work? Right. Even if you're building something that is a sustainable product, thinking about the circularity of this and and how you can work together and perhaps thinking what, what's about what's the consumer experience of the end that's the, yes. the key to it we know often talk about the material and but what's mm-hmm. the consumer experience in at the end yeah and i think it's super powerful because if you can involve the consumer then there's also a, a bit of a bit of power that's to that right i think that when when people something i think about a lot is how if companies can build really good cultures where they treat each other treat their employees really well it usually kind of uh, attracts more people to the company and then if they really like where, where they work they'll probably talk about what they do and then it will you know bring in more customers etc i think the same could be true of the ending right if people are really enjoying this experience initially this is an advantage to companies right it's not only is there potential for actually getting m- more sales potentially but perhaps better loyalty uh, additional new customers and you know your, your brand gaining a lot of traction at some point i assume that if this takes hold it'll actually just be a disadvantage to not do it, right? Rather than being an advantage to do it, you know? Oh, absolutely. There's so many disadvantages to to not doing it. So you lose, as you point out, you all that brand equity, all of that material matter, and the conversation that you're missing out with at the end, whether that be really clear feedback or um, like another sale or like just an emotional sort of like celebratory moment, it's uh, it's it's gigantic. And um, and consumers, I think the biggest loss actually is so many consumers want to do something, and they're probably sick of writing to their MPs and feeling guilty about the earth and it getting damaged, and they want to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. One thing I've also noticed is I, I really think that people forget that. I mean, there's some companies that do this with, you know, surveys and things after your customer service calls. But generally speaking, I think people forget that consumers, their feedback, unless they're just very angry and had a bad day, their feedback can actually be extremely valuable to implementing and making the overall product better. Right. Um, I do. I do want to get to one last question, though, before we wrap sure, up, sure. Here, which is when People, when we talk about this idea of the endings and focusing on the end, could you maybe talk a little bit about how people's outlook might change or what they should think about, especially for young people starting their careers, when they think about not just what they want to do now, but kind of looking towards the end of what they've done in their life, et cetera. Could you talk a little bit about the mentality that you recommend people have, perhaps, you know, people you mentor, things of that nature. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts here in this kind of career choice uh, aspect of their life. Sure. I When I started looking into endings very early on, uh, one of the first things I'd done, people write a bucket list near death. I wrote a bucket list. Uh, that's a, a things you want to do before you die. And I wrote things I wanted to travel to, uh, things I wanted to achieve. And I I thought it was like at the time, I thought it was a sort of an exercise. But actually, it was the most uh, freeing experience because it allowed me to think beyond next month's salary packet, next month's rent, next job. It allowed me to think, what do I really want out of this? And that is a really, I think, one of the most powerful things to do is to really think about, like, well, what do I want that ending to be of my life? And not in a negative way, like, oh, I want to die on a really comfortable bed in a beautiful thing and have and, and try to avoid the material aspects of it you think about the experience of it. So things that I wrote on there is that isn't the jobs I wanted. It was how I wanted to be perceived in an industry. 
like is joe like he's done 10 jobs doing this type of thing or is joe respected in the industry those are two different quantities and i think that was the most powerful thing to do and i would recommend that to anyone mm -hmm. yeah i do think that is really important so, something to to bring up this is kind of unrelated to climate particularly but um i've uh, there's a book called i believe it's my plan for living to 156 i think it's called by all right dan sullivan and um the the idea is that a lot of people he he said he claims that everyone he has ever asked because he does this consulting now everyone he ever asks about when they think they're going to die they have an idea of it right they have like a number in their mind no matter if they've never been asked before and it's usually something like subconscious that kind of came into mind but then he he challenges people to to extend it but if you can get into this mentality of understanding yes you know death is real we, we will die you can also think about what do i want to be at the end of my life what do i want to be remembered for and I think that would, if people thought about that and they kept that in the front of their mind on a frequent basis, not just, you know, when you start your career, but perhaps on a, even a weekly basis, right. Then the decisions they would make on what careers they would pursue, the things they would do, how they would affect people. You know, we look at these, this debacle recently with the, you know, FTX collapsing and like all these people were negatively affected by this. This is if if somebody had thought about how they want to be perceived in their life, they probably would have made different decisions, right? And um, I think it's I think it's a really powerful thing that I've noticed for myself personally, and I think it could be really beneficial for everyone to start thinking about, especially like how did I leave the environment? You know, how did I how did I make this place better or worse for my descendants or just for the rest of the human race in general, even if even if you don't have descendants? So, um, any final thoughts you want to offer um, before we close things up? No, I, I mean, certainly echoing understanding how death happens is a really good one. Look up, um, look up. You, there's a few websites you can go on, put your health in and your height and your weight and stuff and be disappointed about how, lo how long you're going to live. That's one thing. And that it's uh, and it's very sobering and and read a f like just put a little bit of time into really uh, reading about how most people die because it's a horrible death. So it then on consequence of that you'll want to look at your health look at your planning and look at like what's important in life and that's the most important thing yeah it's it's kind of brings it back uh you know i i know we want to close things up here but it brings it back to my first career which was selling life insurance right it was first part of my yeah. career and uh most people just never really thought like you said barely even five years ahead right never thinking about the consequences, especially even in a, a, a one income household of what's going to happen if somebody passes away, unfortunately, right? So anyway, this has been really, really great to have you on here. Some Sometimes a, a bit of a con, con, possibly sobering conversation, but I think really interesting uh, to hear from you. And I really, I really hope people can start to think about this on their own personal consumer, consumer journeys, as well as the products they create. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to seeing the work you continue to do and hopefully get a lot of companies to, to start uh, doing this. Thanks very much, Silas. I mean, if people want to look a bit more, dig into the the, the um, books are on Amazon and you can uh, go to the website andn.co and there's loads of stuff there and follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn and et cetera, et cetera. Thanks ever so much, Silas. And um, thanks for the great show as well. Yeah, absolutely. Th thanks so much, Joe. And also just a quick note to people, be sure to check out his TED Talk that he did. It's really, uh, really great um, way to summarize a lot of this as well. So thank you so much, Joe. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please do share it with somebody else who might find it interesting. I think especially for today's topic, someone else in product development or product design would be probably very appreciative of this interesting topic. And if you enjoyed the show, we always appreciate a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, as it is extremely helpful for growing the reach of the show. I uh, definitely encourage you to reach out and connect with, with Joe and check out his website as well as his books and his TED Talk. All of that is linked in the description. Really fascinating things there. And then if this is your first time and you want to continue on this journey, especially if you're a founder or a VC looking for uh, advice from other VCs and how other founders are building, please do subscribe and tap the bell for notifications. Quick note on our next episode, this will be the kickoff uh, for the show's new focus going into 2023, and we have a really great guest lined up. So we will be joined by Nadav Steinmetz, the CEO and founder of Nomia. Nomia is a climate tech VC focused on early stage companies in the UK, Europe broadly, and Israel. 
And Nadav has a super interesting background. He was born in Belgium, raised in Israel, studied in the United States. At one point, worked for Blackstone. He founded One for the World, which is a uh, kind of charity that helps people focus on investing into our planet and saving the planet. And then has gone on to become the founder and CEO of a VC in the climate tech space called Nomia. So we go through in this conversation their investment criteria, his advice to other VCs in the space, his advice to founders raising as well as building, some of the advice on, on how to pitch as well as uh, a little bit of the operational focus on how to stay stay focused on what's important, etc. And then we talked about his experience doing the fundraising for their fund and a little bit about his general outlook on the climate tech market and some of the some of the kind of industries and verticals that need to be focused on in the coming coming decades. So it was a really fascinating episode episode, a uh, great way to kick off our new the new focus of the show. So stay tuned for that and um, we will be bringing the, bringing that to you soon in the new year. And really again just thank you so much for all of your support this year. Thank you for tuning into this episode and we will see you in the new year on Clean Tech is the podcast.